launching from an ether port at RBN, cruising at light speed. Here's your host, Steve Stars. Welcome back, everybody, again to another show on light speed. I am, uh, well, your host, Steve Sars, and I'm glad to be back with you again on uh, on a Monday. Mondays I always look forward to because uh, I like this show. I I wish I could do more time here and um, enjoy uh, doing a lot more uh, great shows with you folks and great callers and uh, people uh, you know paying attention, which is really ex- exciting to me and uh, inspiring because we don't have too much of that going on anymore. But uh, I am glad to be here, and I'm really glad to have you along. And we're going to be talking about what's happening. Of course, uh, maybe you're out of energy right now a little bit. I am. Not. Uh, I'm not saying that I am. You know, lying all over the floor like a puddle. But I'm a little about out of energy because so much has happened with this uh, entire situation that we see in the Middle East, uh, particularly what's going on in Gaza right now. We're going to be talking a little bit about that. Um, I go back quite a few years with. Uh, the whole analysis of what what uh, Iran has been doing o- over the years, you may not remember, and I'm uh, uh, hoping you don't, because if you do, you'll be as old as I am. I'm not an antique right now, but I'll, I'll tell you, I was uh, I was in college in 1979 when the Shah fell from power in Iran, and uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini took over, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about that because. Uh, I learned a lot of things during that period of time as a young fellow. I had a friend who was an exchange student from Iran. He was actually a Persian Jew. Many Jewish people lived in Iran for many years. The Shah was a good uh, ally of Iran, a very famous, uh, very uh, appropriate and kind of a a guy who helped uh, Israelis along quite a ways, even though the Shiite uh, Muslims in that area were opposed to a lot of what was going on at that time, which was another one of the reasons why the Shah was uh, falling out of power. He had a lot of trouble there in his country. We'll get into that. You may know about Mossadegh in 1953, who tried to nationalize the oil production and oil uh, that was going out of Iran. And that was one of the reasons why the CIA overthrew him. The CIA was now getting tired of the Shah because the Shah actually instigated the OPEC uh, convention, to be really honest with you. These people have this strange idea that our oil under their land should have a little bit of their control. You know, Now, where do they get that idea? I mean, come on now. I certainly, yeah, they, they have better knowledge than that. But actually... Um, the truth is there was a, a big upset in the oil market. The, that was when OPEC, the oil producing economic community, uh, whatever I think the acronym stands for, uh, these nations began to congeal and uh, try to corner the market and, and get a little bit better payoff for the oil that they were ex- exporting at that time. So that was one of the things that came up out of all that. And uh, now, I won't go into a lot of the details too much here. I, maybe we'll save this for the, later on in the show because it's going to get pretty heavy. In any event, uh, my friend, my little friend, uh, his name was uh, Dariush. Dariush. Now, Dariush is the uh, the pronunciation in Farsi of the name Darius. Darius that we find in the Bible, King Darius. Um, that is, uh, uh, Dariush is like a superior king, a king of kings. He's one of the, the top, he's the top king in a sense. And so it actually was more of a title in some ways than it was a, uh, 
was a, uh, a name. Dariush was, meant the top king. Dariush the Mede, you read about him as a hero in, in the book of Daniel. So, um, you know, he had come to the United States, and he was going to school there at this uh, agricultural A&M that I was at, Colorado State, you know, studying agronomy. You know, he wanted to study crops and things and how they grow. And we had a good relationship with the Shah at that time. But uh, as you may remember, in 78 and 79, there was a lot of uh, contention in Iran about an overthrow of the government. Now, what had happened was the Shah had become very, very vicious in, in many ways with his uh, secret police that was called Savak at that time. Savak was going around and really, uh, I mean, they were very, very heavy-handed and they were brutal. And just like we've seen with uh, people like Noriega or Samosa uh, or uh, how many other different people out there that we've seen over the years, uh, you know, our good friend Saddam, as uh, Reagan called him at one point, you know, different people like that have become very, very brutal and powerful in these corners of the world. And so the uh, the Shah was losing the favor. The CIA was actually working to take the Shah out of power. So they were actually helping the Ayatollah Khomeini. And uh, I had a friend who was, or a person that I got in contact with, wasn't a friend, but I met him in a, a kind of in a, in a consulting chat group. And he was working with, he said, Canadian in Canadian uh, operations with the United Nations. And then he finally admitted it was Canadian intel- intelligence that was working with the U.S. intelligence and the CIA in providing cassettes uh, audio cassettes from the Ayatollah Khomeini to millions and millions of uh, Iranians at that time. And the Ayatollah Khomeini was very uh, much against the Shah. He was explaining, he was creating a very, what I would call an evil, uh, evil spiritual uh, revival there is what it was. And uh, that is how this was foaming over there. Very similar to the way the CIA actually helped uh, Fidel Castro in the very beginning, because Batista was getting out of control. You see what I'm saying? Uh, uh, Confessions of the Economic Hitman. You remember that from John Perkins' uh, book, probably. Uh, John Perkins is a little too liberal for me, but he's right about what he's telling you. This has been going on for quite some time. It's criminal. It's the ugly American university of how we've been controlling a lot of these countries around the world which is coming back to haunt us today, including Venezuela and Maduro and a few of those other people, uh, Hugo Chavez. We'll get into that because this all ties into everything. Uh, we've had other people in power that we've, that we've placed and actually helped and assisted in some ways. One was Yasser Arafat, believe it or not. I mean, he was definitely tied to Western interests in order to uh, keep the Palestinians basically confused and poor, in my opinion. And another one was Mahmoud Abbas, which is in the news today, and we're going to talk about him. This was the guy that was head of Fatah, the organization that was displaced by Hamas there. And uh, he is back trying to get into power, telling everybody that, uh, you know, Hamas is not speaking for the Palestinian people. He is he's back to trying to uh, corner the market on the position of leadership that he was pushed out of by uh, by Hamas. And his organization was kind of settled in uh, behind the scenes with the Palestinian Liberation Authority. We'll get into that later on. But let me get back to the story about what what happened back in 1979. Um, I was in the student center. Of course, I had my little my friend who is um, 
from there, from Iran. And uh, he spoke good English, and, and we got to be good buddies. And, and you know, uh, he was a, a Jew, but he became uh, involved with a group of uh, people that I worked with who were like Jews for Jesus, but it was a different organization, very honorable and respectful man that I knew uh, who was a uh, Jewish leader who actually fought in the Israeli independence war and uh, lost his family in the Holocaust. He almost died in Russia when he was imprisoned there and ended up fighting the Germans on the Eastern Front and came back to his home. His, his family was all gone. And uh, he went to Israel in 1947, fought in the Israeli independence war. But, you know, he would tell you about Israel. He said that uh, about 90 percent at that time of Jews in Israel were atheist at best, atheist at best. You know, and you look at him in these kind of blue green eyes and that it looked behind from behind the bars of a Russian prison. He, you knew he was telling you the truth. So he had a real yearning to share the the, the gift gift and calling and and the love and the grace of God in Messiah Yeshua. And he was on our campus and, and I got to know him very well and he was a, an, an amazing mentor, you know what I mean? Uh, a great guy. I had a long beard, you know, he, he he dressed the part so he could reach his people. He was trying to reach Jewish people for Messiah Yeshua. He was a Jew for Jesus, okay, if you want to, not in that organization per se, but he knew a lot of these people. He had been all over the world. He had no intention of becoming a missionary for uh, this kind of an organization, but God called him. He was in Brazil at that time because he had to escape from Israel. It was so bad there with the wars. He had a young family. The only person left in his family was his uncle who lived in Brazil and was working at a textile factory. And he said, I got to get out of here. This is too bad. I don't like what's happening. So he left in, uh, in 47, 48, somewhere in there and went down to Brazil. And he had no intention of getting anywhere involved with anything in Europe or anything Jewish or, you know what I mean? He was trying to get away from it all, just working as a day laborer for his uncle and people there at this uh, textile factory trying to make a, a living. When uh, a young man who was a, a Protestant uh, invited him to a church to see a film about Martin Luther, and he became a believer in Jesus at that time, but he didn't even know there was a group of Jews who believed in Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, and there are a growing group of these people right now, and I work with a lot of these folks. So but at the same time, he went back to try to uh, talk to a lot of the Jewish people. He was rejected. Uh, people did not like him in a lot of cases, even though they got along with him and had to respect his background because of where he'd been. I mean, a lot of these American Jews were not in Europe. They didn't lose their families. They weren't in a Russian prison uh, when they fled from Poland. You know, they couldn't tell you the stories, and they hadn't been on the front line. And they damn sure, excuse the expression, were not in the Israeli independence war either. Okay, this man commanded respect among Jews. Okay, he had to. They, they had to respect what he had been through. And he would tell them about the love of God. He would tell them about Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. He would say, this is our real Messiah. This is the one we've been looking for. We've missed him, but he is still open to receiving as many who want to come and call upon his name. And he was a wonderful man. I, I tell you, sometimes it just brings, a, I get a little misty thinking of him because uh, he was such a, an amazing person and he became a good friend and more of a mentor really than a friend. But, uh, you know, and he told me that the condition of Jews in Israel is very, very bad spiritually. But there are groups of people, small groups, who are becoming acquainted with Messiah, Yeshua. They're beginning to see the scriptures 
So anyway, we'll get into that at some other point. But what I'm going to say is that I had met this little Jewish a friend of mine from Persia. You know, his family was doing very well. He was over here in the United States trying to learn how to uh, farm and, and study in agriculture and things like that. You know, he wasn't uh, he wasn't involved in any kind of radical uh, operation or he, he didn't know. I mean, he wasn't on one side or the other with the whole thing with the Shah. I mean, on obviously the benefits that the Shah had brought a lot of these foreign exchange students to our campus in Fort Collins. And, uh, all right, and so all this is going on. Well, I'm in the student center one day, and I'm I'm having a, you know a sweet roll and some coffee. And next thing I know, there's about thirty people dressed up like the Ku Klux Klan. You know what I mean? In sheets with holes in the eyes and and like looking like ghosts and are wearing masks or something. And they have uh, these big these big signs down with Shah. You know, Shah is murderer, death to Shah. You know, and I mean I'm sitting in there and it's like uh, it's pretty scary when you're, you know you're in a uh, you know, student center cafeteria and all of a sudden you know it's full of these people wearing masks with big signs and stuff and it's I mean a really rowdy bunch so this whole thing was erupting on our campus at that time and uh, you know I'm like a lot of us I you know I knew a little bit about these things but not that much and I didn't know the conditions of what was going on there and there were uh, there were there was a fight actually uh, to a large extent, among these Iranian exchange uh, students. Some of them were there because of the Shah. They were supporting the Shah, and the others were against him. Now, this entire thing that happened in Iran was fomented by our own CIA. They wanted to get rid of the Shah. Now, there was somebody who could have taken over at that time. His name was uh, Shopar Bakhtiar, and uh, he he was not a Shah... Uh, supporter. He was actually a political, but a very, you know, secular government type uh, political dissident against the Shah himself. And he he represented an opportunity for the nation to to basically move on into a little bit more of a different kind of a government organization rather than a monarchy. The the Shah was a monarch, okay? You got to understand that. It was uh, moving towards more of a parliamentary kind of a, of a government there at that time, and uh, but this wasn't what uh, had fomented at this point. Now we had a very very dangerous group of people, a revolution that was it uh, was getting uh, ready to react with a lot of very uh, dangerous and and loud and vociferous uh, threats and attacks, death to Israel, death to the USA. All this hadn't really started at that point, but it was getting ready to. And here's my little friend from uh, from Iran, and he, you know, what, what he doesn't know where he's going. First of all, his parents are very upset with the fact that he is becoming a Jewish believer in Messiah. That's a problem there. Over here, he's Jewish, and you know, the Jews are f- losing favor with a lot of Iranians right now. Uh, most Americans think he's an Iranian, which he is. You know, he speaks beautiful, uh, wonderful Farsi. He is, you know, uh, good English, of course, too. But I mean, he has no friends except for us, right? And we're just kind of uh, holding on to him dearly and 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 trying to uh, you know stay with him in this tough tough time because uh, you know he has no place to go but uh, where he is right now. And so he reached out to us and. And uh, we got to be really good friends, he and I. But anyway, this was all going on at that time. And um, I'll go into more details of this as I progress. But the point is, I began to write letters 
to the local uh, Colorado, uh, well, the Colorado State University uh, newspaper there. It was called the Journal at that time. And I denounced the Iranian revolt. And I said, this is not going to end up good. I said, there is a person who I was trying to point out that there was a way out of this, with, which was with Bakhtiar at this point. The Shah, yes, the Shah has probably uh, corrupted the situation so bad he needs to go, he needs to step down, but you do not want to get Six foot four, weighing 245 pounds of crime fighting, political science analyzing brawn. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Patrick Slattery. So, Mike, get off this anti cicada agenda. I'm a born again traditional Christian, and my favorite possessions are right here on my nightstand. That would be the King James Bible and my 357 revolver. I'd rather be ruled by Chinamen than Jews. Cool it with the anti Semitic remarks, right? Just because you steal an election and terminate the republic doesn't mean you terminate the people in the republic, because we're still here. 
I'm not taking the vaccine. F*** you, Bill Gates. There was a way forward still on January 6th. What needed to be done is to object to every single state. The COVID-19 virus was the setup. The vaccine could very well be a bioweapon. The Patrick and Jeremy Show, Tuesday at 9 Central and Wednesday at 1 Central. I'm so excited to have you as part of the Wild Pastures family, and we look forward to bringing you the pastures meats that you and your family will love. Now, we started Wild Pastures because so many of my clients would tell me they just couldn't find high-quality pastures meats, and even when they did, it was so expensive that they couldn't afford to eat it regularly. Now, I'm not talking about the bottom-of-the-barrel healthy meats that have claims like natural or free-range or even cage-free, terms that were actually created by the industrial food industry to make us feel all warm and fuzzy about buying their low-quality products. I'm talking about truly nourishing pasture-raised meats, the kind that you'll never really find in a grocery store. Our farmers are doing things beyond organic. Our beef is 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and raised on pastures free from chemicals and other pesticides. Our chickens are 100% pasture-raised, where they get their natural diet of grass and forage and insects. We will never settle for free range, which is actually one of the most deceptive terms in the chicken industry. In fact, less than 0.1% of the chicken consumed in the United States is truly pasture-raised in the way that ours is. And our pork is 100% pasture-raised as well. So if you care about where your food comes from, then you have definitely made it to the right place. As a Wild Pastures member, you'll be supporting the most highly principled farmers in America and getting the most nutrient-dense, nourishing, and sustainable meats in the world. I'm confident you'll love being part of our mission at Wild Pastures, and you will really love the delicious, nourishing meats that we're going to deliver straight to your door. Visit republicbroadcasting.org and click the Wild Pastures banner ad. Secure a shipment today. Beef, poultry, and pork. Raised the way nature intended. Welcome back, everybody. Hey, uh, I am back. <laughs> that was odd. Uh, you know, I've uh, done a lot of shows on RBN, and occasionally there's some mishaps, but that one was a strange one. We just lost connection right in the middle of everything I was talking about. That was very strange. Never happened on this show or this ship. But, I mean, sometimes it's pilot error. You know what I mean? Sometimes we make mistakes, but that was strange. We were just coasting along, and all of a sudden, as I was talking about the CIA, and how they were involved in uh, helping and assisting the Ayatollah Khomeini come to power in 1978 and 79 by providing cassettes uh, to a lot of people around the world. And at that time, uh, he was in Paris, and they were he was uh, uh, pre- presenting all this information uh, against the Shah, who, who the uh, CIA wanted to take down. But instead of getting him to step down and maybe replace it with a more parliamentary leader or something like that, because you know, he was a monarch, 
they were determined to help this uh, rambunctious group, just like they helped Castro in the beginning and then found out it was out of control. They've done this over and over and over, friends. You know what I mean? They've made so many mistakes over the years, taking down bad people who needed to be taken down, but replacing them with somebody who was far worse. This happened with Hugo Chavez. It happened with Samosa. Uh, it happened with, well, the Shah, you know, of course, and so many others. But anyhow, this is what was happening. And I'll get back to talking about that. And I was on the Colorado State University campus at that time. By the way, you might remember there was a man who was taken hostage in Lebanon, uh, along with a fellow by the name of Terry Anderson, who is the AP, uh, uh, invest- not investigator, but a reporter from there. His name is Dr. Tom Sutherland. I actually had him as a professor. Uh, he was, uh, you know, he was a cowboy or a farming kind of guy from Scotland, actually. But he uh, he uh, was an expert in uh, animal artificial insemination that showed us how we could uh, take uh, the sperm from prize bulls and impregnate cows all over the country and have very, very high quality uh, uh, meat uh, produced that way. Uh, but he was also an animal scientist and why he went to uh, Beirut to be a professor, I don't know, but he wanted to spend a few years and have a foreign, uh, you know, a, a foreign operation or a foreign, uh, you know, kind of experience in his uh, tenure of, uh, of experience, I suppose. That's why he left. But anyhow, he was taken hostage for six years. He was released and brought back, by the way, and thank God he made it through it all. But he was a prisoner of Hezbollah there in uh, southern uh, uh, Lebanon, actually, Beirut, that Beirut area. And we'll be talking about Hezbollah because Hezbollah was actually started by the Shiite uh, Muslims of Iran, and that's where it actually instigated from. Uh, But anyhow, getting back to the conversation, I don't know if we lost a lot of you, and I'm sorry about that, but somehow uh, something decided to interrupt the the broadcast here, and I'm back on target. I was telling you about my little Jewish friend who I'd met from uh, from Persia, who uh, had come to the United States, and he was right in the middle of everything that was going on. I was in the student center. Uh, Iranians were fighting with Iranians. They were uh, all over the place with signs and wearing masks and wearing sheets and stuff like that you didn't know because you see these people didn't want to be identified if they were against the shah and at the same time they didn't uh, want to be identified about with uh, some other iranians and people who knew who they were who were uh, for the shah so i mean there was a lot of trouble going on here in 1978 and 79 at this state university you know what i mean so uh, i remember what happened and i wrote a, a letter to the newspaper And I said, what is happening in Iran is getting very dangerous. And I fear they're going from the fire pan, frying pan to the fire, uh, the atomic fire, really very fast. And if you care about Iran, pray for them now because they're in trouble. And I I recommended that they look into having an exchange of government because I wasn't defending the Shah. I knew there were problems with him there. But at the same time, I explained that uh, Islam is a very, very dangerous cult. And the Shiite portion of this, uh, of Islam, is probably the most dangerous part of it. Uh, Because uh, what is happening here is people are being misled into a system that is very, very dangerous. Now, of course, you can imagine I was real popular with what I had to say. But I also pointed out that from Scripture, uh, 
if you deny that Jesus is the Son of God, that is the spirit of the Antichrist. It says that in John chapter 2, of First uh, John chapter 2, I believe it is, and various other places, John makes that comment quite frequently. And I'm, I'm saying that what this is, is the spirit of the Antichrist that's taken over in Iran, is what it is. And yes, uh, Islam as a whole denies that Jesus is the Son of God. It denies that he died on the cross. No, it wasn't him. He didn't die on the cross. And uh, yes, he did ascend into heaven, of course, and he's a prophet, but it, it denies the the salvation and the blood payment for your salvation, ladies and gentlemen. That is not uh, a real religion. And I know a lot of people get upset because this one major point doesn't fit with Christianity or even Judaism for that matter. Okay. Yes, I understand that. But that is one of the things that is the identifying uh, factor of what all we know about Christianity, that Jesus is the son, the word of God, the lamb of God, the God who became flesh. We'll get into that a little bit more after you get after this break. Maybe take some calls. We don't lose connection again. Hang in here. It's going to get more intense, I promise you. We'll be talking about what's happening right now. You are tuned in to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Visit our website, by going to republicbroadcasting.org. The secret to aging like fine wine is in the vines. Ciroc grape seeds and skins contain high levels of flavonoids and resveratrol. Fermentation breaks these organic compounds down into smaller molecules, penetrating these therapeutic ingredients deeper into the skin, delivering faster and more effective results. Our handmade fermented skincare products are formulated with all natural ingredients and do not contain any phthalates or parabens. Similar products can cost as much as $180. At Natural Earth Medicine, we source our ingredients from local Arizona vineyards and cold process our oils to ensure that our customers receive the highest quality product in its purest form. Learn more at our website and try our fermented skincare products today. Visit naturalearthmedicine.com. That's naturalearthmedicine.com. Are you sick of censorship? TLB Talk is the cure. TLB stands for truth, liberty, and balance. We are the newest and most unique social media platform to hit the internet. We were built out of necessity because Big Tech, Big Pharma, and Big Brother are out of control. The only thing bigger than them is when we the people are united. With that vision, TLB Talk was born. Our battlefield is in cyberspace. The battle we're in can be won by clicks of buttons and voting with your wallet. TLB Talk has no hidden agendas, no corporate funding, and we do not sell, trade, or give away any of your information. Our platform runs off of generous donations of members and merchandise profits. So please, check out our site. It's the best around. And be sure to stop by our store. It's loaded with items that'll have you feeling a sense of member pride and victory. Come unite with us today at TLBtalk.com and join the social media revolution. 
homeowners? Are you in foreclosure, expecting to be served with a foreclosure lawsuit, or suspect your lender has coerced you into an illegal mortgage transaction? A huge number of mortgages made in the last 10 years have legal issues and are possibly defective. State laws and the U.S. Supreme Court have upheld that defective mortgage documents are grounds for foreclosure defense and for counterclaims in favor of the homeowner. If your mortgage has been sold or assigned since closing the loan, it may be defective and you may be paying the wrong party and the lender may not have standing or the right to foreclose or collect payments under the law. If you would like to know if your mortgage is legal or not or know if you are paying the right party, we can help. Our initial consultations are free of charge. We are not attorneys. We are legal researchers and work closely with experienced lawyers who know how to help you find the evidence to help you keep your home. Call toll-free 1-855-2-KEEP-IT. That's 1-855-2-KEEP-IT today. Back, everybody. Glad to be with you again. And, uh, you know, thank you for hanging in there. This is one of those shows that I really feel like we need to talk about, uh, you know, concerning what's happening right now. Because, yes, uh, a lot is going on. The idea of clearing out Gaza of all of these people and also uh, taking on this kind of a thing at this moment is very, uh, uh, I think it's all kind of uh, overblown and way beyond what is rational and what should be happening in my thinking. And I think you probably agree as well. Um, There has been a lot going on. I was going to continue with my story very quickly here, though. I had written this letter to the uh, university newspaper, and man, you should have seen the flack I heard. I've I've kept all those letters, and someday uh, I would like to publish them because a lot of those people call me all kinds of names because I basically said, look, you know, to these are these are people who are, you know, post uh, post 60s. You know, this is the uh, mid eight. This is like 1979, you know, and they're, you know, university students and all these people like that. And, and uh, you know, for me to say something as audacious as to say that this revolution that's taking place in Iran is a dangerous, evil, satanic cult. It's taken over right here. I mean, that was over the top, right? I mean, they call me everything from SS to Nazi. You know what I mean? The the typical knee-jerk stupid stuff that these people say, you know. And I mean, I I think I got maybe one or two comments out of about 25 or 30 letters in response to this uh, newspaper letter that I'd written to the editor that was positive. The rest of them were just, I mean, completely, uh, um, I mean, they were just, just basically mouthing off like liberals do, you know. And, uh, I mean, it, it went on for about two weeks, and then they took over our embassy with the hostages. And all of a sudden, it got real quiet. Bing! You could hear a, a pin drop. 
because suddenly they started to re- then there was an earthquake by the way too suddenly people started realizing uh, 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 uh you know how they how it is when they finally realized they were stupid you know i mean all of a sudden they started realizing something was going really wrong and then you saw nightline you know ted koppel made a career out of nightline because of what happened there in iran in 79 with the fall of the shah and you saw these people screaming in the streets death to america death to israel you know all of a sudden it wasn't popular anymore to be uh defending you know the wonderful traits of another religion then you're so close-minded and bigoted you know i mean all of a sudden they started realizing they were up against something different you know and uh it got real real quiet for a while and then all of a sudden you know nobody ever wrote back and said hey you know uh, i think that guy uh, steve was right you know uh, this is a weird weird uh, i mean this is a very dangerous group of people out there and they weren't as dangerous as they let on to be, to be really honest. Well, they were to their own people. I mean, it was atrocious what they did to their own people. I had a friend who, who had whose husband was there at that time, and she painted a painting that was kind of a impressionistic painting of this soldier just being murdered by the, by the crowds there. And she said this is the kind of stuff that he told me about that came out of uh, of Iran at that time. And uh, I mean, it was awful. She said that he just you know that what had taken place there. Anyway, my little friend, too, had, uh, our Jewish friend, uh, I said, you know, we've got to get your, your folks out of there. You know, I mean, this is not going to go well for Jews in Iran any longer. They've been there for thousands of years. And, they, you know, back, back to the Persian Empire. I think Iranian people, for the most part, are pretty smart and pretty intelligent. Uh, but what had happened was that we had the, uh, we had the uh, basically what we had was the people that were coming in, at that time were very reactionary and they created a reaction and this is what happens when you stir this kind of thing up and that's why it was taken over at that time so when you when you talk about how these people have been misled by a cult like this you're seeing the same thing the same problem is still there today now the sunni are a little bit more negotiable that's why it to a large extent, the Israelis have been able to get along with the Saudis, uh, Jordanians, um, and to some extent, the people in Egypt and the other regions around there are a little better. But the, uh, Sh- the Shiites are very, very, uh, very, very aggressive. They're a very small minority. They're only about 10%, I think it is, of the entire Iranian uh, or the Iti- entire uh, Islamic population around the world. But they are a little bit more uh, aggressive, and they are out to, uh, you know, accomplish their goals. And they are—they created this organization, Hezbollah, at that time, which meant uh, the government of God or the war of God, the jihad. You know, some people look at jihad as a, a time of, of spreading their faith, and others look at it as a time of shedding blood. You know, I mean, it's been a little different between the two, and over all these years, the Shia— and the Sunni have been fighting battles, and there's also the Alawites. Now, what happened was they began exporting, they began exporting weapons and going through the Levant, if you like, through Syria, and they began building up a big, big uh, armory in the southern border of Lebanon. And we're going to come up to date now. It's been quite a few years, well, over 40 years since this has all happened. And there's also been the problems with a two-state solution that probably should have never started in the first place, in my opinion. But, um, you know, they, uh, 
cordoned off uh, Gaza, which is down on the southwestern uh, strip uh, on the ocean there. A sleepy little uh, fishing town for many years, but then now it's got about, what, 2.3, 2.4 million living in that region and another five or 600,000 people around in the other areas. Uh, living in, in what is a, a really confined and very dangerous, and some people have even gone as far to say that it is an open-air concentration camp. So um, the uh, the difference between what uh, should have been and what is became even worse and worse as, as things progressed. And as you know, Bibi Netanyahu uh, was the, the person who had taken on the idea that we need to get rid of uh, Hezbollah to the north, which is being funded and armed by Iran, and our enemy is Iran. He's always looked at Iran as the main enemy and talked about that for quite some time. Yes, there are some serious problems with what we have seen here, and people will argue. And I think the I listen to those points because there's some questions about what happened uh, in, in this attack. I mean, how what how was it the IDF stood down for all these hours? The Iron Dome went down. Uh, where did these uh, armaments come from? A lot of them appear to be military uh, weaponry that may have been taken from Afghanistan or brought in because they were using a lot of U.S. military equipment. How did these guys uh, manage to uh, fly in with, uh, you know, these flying uh, paragliders you know to me that looks it looks strange i mean i'm not saying they weren't deadly i'm just saying everything about that looks really really weird because if anybody were aware of them i mean you could have taken those down with a 12 gauge shotgun friends you didn't need you know automatic weapons just you blow a couple holes in the paraglider and then down they come i mean pretty obviously stupid i mean you've been harder to hit a, a goose than it would have been one of those things but at the same time I mean, that was only part of it. Yet there were missiles that were being fired from that area. Some of them were very sophisticated, had the ranges of 25 to 50 kilometers, even up to 150. So there was some very advanced weaponry that was being used at the same time as well. I won't go into too much of that because a lot of people say, was this a false flag that Netanyahu pulled off because he's hurting in the polls, because he's very unpopular? This is the third time he's been placed in as a PM, by the way, and I'll go into that in maybe some more detail as well. But the situation being here is that we have a real problem with uh, the way this is enveloped because there's no way you're going to evacuate uh, 2.3 million people or you're going to be able to accommodate these people anywhere. Egypt doesn't want them. The Saudis don't want them. There is no place for these people to relocate to. And yes, I think Gaza's situation has gotten really bad. And I'm going to get back to the whole thing with Abbas because he's back again. The person that I have a lot of respect for politically right now is RFK Jr., who has said very plainly what I agree with, that Palestinian leadership has been horrible. They've been really a problem. This is where the real issue is. I think the Palestinian leadership has been bad since Yasser Arafat. You know, what, a, what an idiot he was. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. He was from Egypt. And then you got uh, Mahmoud Abbas now. And I was going to read you an article real quick here about that. And uh, let's see what he has to say. Uh, well, anyway, 
U.S. President Biden is set to visit Israel this week, and he accepts invitation from Netanyahu. But Biden has said Israel retaking Gaza Strip would be a big mistake. Okay, well, yeah. So no, even Biden is on the wrong side of this, at least in terms of the uh, Israeli policy at the moment. This is going to be interesting to see how this turns out. But I wanted to read this article really quick here. This is uh, from the Jerusalem Post, of course, so you know, consider the source. But Hamas, Hamas actions do not represent Palestinians, says Mahmoud Abbas. Okay, so he has been critical of Hamas for a long time. He headed up an organization or another part of the Palestinian leadership called the Fatah, and he was removed from basically being the main uh, spokesman for the Palestinians. But he is now saying that Hamas is really a problem. It's an infighting political party that's going on there, as you see. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas said, the actions and politics of the terrorist group Hamas do not represent Palestinian people, according to official news agency, the WAPA. In a phone call with Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, there you are, in, in Venezuela now. Abbas also called the Palestine, Liberi- Palestine Liberi- Liberation Organization, sorry, the sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. So they, they've been overrun, if that's the case. But now we have this problem here with Hezbollah to the north. Friends, I'm going to get into that in a little bit. I know uh, we've got some things happening here that we're going to have to to really sort out and look at by uh by piece by piece, because the whole thing is a uh, well, it's a it's a cluster. Let's put it this way: there is no solution here to any of it at this moment, right now, and it's going to keep getting worse until it may break out into a much bigger war. So here's what I'm going to say to kind of sum this up: the the forces of Hamas are not the threat to Israel that are being portrayed. I mean, yes, they can be. The real for the real problem is Hezbollah to the north. They have dug in there uh, for quite some time. I had from Barry Shamish, who is a, a, an excellent uh, reporter, a, a dissident reporter, if you like, uh, Israeli reporter, telling us about this for years. Hamas is dug in on the on the southern border of Lebanon, the northern border of Israel, with extremely powerful missile. Weaponry. Now, Barry was in the IDF, and he was in the missile war of 1884. He was a missile technologist, uh, you know, or a technician or a firing guy, you know what I mean. He was in the warfare. He knew what it was like. He said uh, Hezbollah has armed to the teeth with some of the most more elaborate weaponry and missiles. I'm not talking about rocket-propelled grenades or mortars. We're talking about missiles with 150-kilometer uh, range, missiles that can easily hit just about any location in Israel. His opinion is, and even Netanyahu has said this, that the Hezbollah, Hezbollah army and, and the the embankment of all their weaponry on the border is like a knife to the throat of Israel. They can level Israel in about 90 minutes, level it all. That's how powerful their weaponry is. This is why you see the Fifth Fleet coming in right now, or the Mediterranean Fleet coming in, and you see some real serious problems because their your real problem isn't Hamas, and it's not on the southern border. It's there on the northern border 
with Hezbollah. They are extremely well disciplined, they're extremely well uh, equipped, and they have very, very strong weaponry. This is what caused the problems with all the warfare going across from Aleppo back to Damascus. That's why the big war is in the north, it's not in the south. And uh, this is one of the reasons why this is getting so intense, because if that breaks loose, there is going to be serious, serious warfare across the whole region. It's not just about a regional warfare right now. Now, why they would stir this issue up or why a false flag would take place doesn't seem to make a lot of mistake, uh, sense, or it may have been a mistake is what I'm getting at. But uh, the point is simply this, that this is where this thing is headed right at the moment. And we're going to, you know, uh, talk about that a little bit more. I guess we've got a break maybe coming up in a minute or so or two. And I'm going to try to get to a call, too, as well. But I want to finish this up and say that uh, what you're looking at here, uh, there's always deception. Of course there is. And, you know, the, the reality is uh, you can talk about biblical prophecy. You can talk about things that are happening here, all of which pertain. But we have a lot of people caught in the crossfire here. And it's not just Israelis, it's everybody in this area. And whether they're going to be able to actually eradicate the threat, which even the Lebanese would like out of there. And I have in-laws who are from Lebanon, and they will tell you that uh, the situation there in Lebanon is not good. Excuse me, I had to clear my throat there. They have been, uh, they're Christian Lebanese, they're Marianite, who've lived there for many years, and, and they have told me that uh, they don't talk too much about politics to Americans. They're, they're dual citizens in, in many cases and live over here, wonderful people, very intelligent. Most of them speak three to four languages. Uh, but, you know, if you get to know them, they'll share a little bit with what's going on, because they know a lot of Americans don't quite understand a lot what's going on, because they've been in these situations with the Muslims, Muslim uh, attacks there in Lebanon. Lebanon is not a happy place either, as you may know. This is where Tom Sutherland was abducted as a uh, hostage for six years by Hezbollah, my old professor at CSU. Anyhow, getting back to the point, uh, what you're looking at there is Hezbollah has dug in very, very deep. The Lebanese have become very uncomfortable with it. At first, when Hezbollah came in, they were very diplomatic. They built schools. They helped people out. They were friendly. But as time went on, that relationship went kind of sour. So even Lebanese do not like Hezbollah anymore. They would like to see them out of there because they know they're a threat. But Hezbollah provided a guard against the movements of ground troops in Israel back in, was it 2006, in that last big war, where they were stopped on the ground. Israel didn't lose that battle. They had to withdraw from it because the only other option was to use heavy, heavy air power bombing. And that was going to have a very high cost of civilian casualties. Okay, we got a break uh, coming up here. Uh, I'll kind of finish up with that and then we'll get to a call. I think we've got Lark hanging in Texas and we'll try to get to him for a closer here. All right? Stay with us right here on Lightspeed on RBN. Support the network, friends. We're getting the truth out to you. One of the millions of people who feel like there is a dark cloud hanging over their heads whenever they're using pharmaceutical drugs. For some, the short-term relief can turn into an opioid addiction nightmare. 
Have you ever wondered why CBD oil is a billion-dollar industry? It's because it works better than opioids and is actually healthy for you. However, CBD oil is stripped of all other helpful compounds found in the hemp plant. According to neuroscientists, the whole hemp plant, otherwise known as hemp paste, is even more effective than the chemically processed CBD oil. Are you ready to take back your health? You can try hemp paste for the price of a cup of coffee. Hemppaste.com slash RBN. Free shipping on orders over $50. See the banners for Hemp Paste at republicbroadcasting.org and visit hemppaste.com slash RBN. Find your inner rebel at Dixie Republic, the world's largest Confederate store, located in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. The anti-white, anti-Christ, anti-Southern world ends at the asphalt. Welcome to God's country. Log on to DixieRepublic.com to view our Southern merchandise from flags to t-shirts to artwork. At the store, browse through our extensive collection of belt buckles and have a custom-made leather belt handcrafted in our Johnny Rebs gun and leather shop. That's DixieRepublic.com where you can meet all of your Southern needs. Support those that support the network. Support Dixie Republic at DixieRepublic.com. Email ProudSouthern123 at gmail.com and let them know that RBN sent you. Do you or someone you know suffer from chest pain, blood pressure, cholesterol, or irregular heartbeat? Are you looking for a more natural solution to overcome these health challenges? You hear the ads all the time. If this stuff's so good, why doesn't my doctor prescribe it? That's easy. Doctors are not trained in natural medicine. Extendivite Heart Tonic does want you to be as healthy as you can be. And it really works. Take Extendivite for six months and your doctor will say, I don't know what you're doing, but don't stop. It's working for you. Get the dependability of Extendivite. Just see how you feel in six months. A two-month supply of either capsules or liquid is only $69.95 plus shipping and handling. Call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Extend Back in, we've uh, kind of wrap up the show here a little bit. We've had some interruptions and stuff, but I had a lot of information I really wanted to get out to you to talk to you a little bit about what's really going on. Um, and uh, I, I think I was trying to direct our attention to the fact that, you know, there are some serious issues. Was this a false flag uh, that took place in order to give BB not new, uh, you know, not not to New- Yahoo, <laughs> an opportunity. He actually lived out here for a little while, close to where I was at, believe it or not. But uh, yeah, BB's been there three times. I'm going to that some other time. I'm going to get to Lark. But I was just going to sum it up to say this. Okay, what's really happening? Is this dangerous? Yes, it really is. And uh, it's not a winning situation for either side, but it is a confrontation that's boiling up. And before I say too much more, we've got a few more minutes here. Let's get to Lark if he's still there. Lark, sorry to keep you holding. I was just trying to get a lot out there. What's happening, buddy? 
Hey, no problem. Uh, I would just like to uh, say that I would encourage you to talk about what you know about this part of the world in uh, future episodes, because I've appreciated uh, your comment. <clears throat> but uh, for whatever it's worth to you, you know, I'm, I'm nearly 70 years old. I've, I've kind of been around a little while, and uh, I have a long memory, uh, going back to the early 70s. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I remember the... Uh, the uh, the big uh, airplane uh, jet uh, contracts that were made uh, to Iran under the Shah. And I remember meeting a lot of the uh, pilots that were actually in this country training. A lot of these people wanted to stay. They married American women. Uh, this was in the very early 70s. And I also remember what happened about the time of the uh, Iranian Revolution. But I also am cognizant of what happened in 1953 with uh, uh, Mosaddegh. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I also know about uh, the Shah's uh, Spadak, uh, spy apparatus, and he was not uh, exactly loved by the Iranian people. At the same time, he was uh, betrayed. Uh, remember some of his last uh, interviews that you can still find on the Internet uh, in, the year, in the year or so just before he died. But I, I just want to say that I have, uh, I don't generally comment on current events because I don't believe anything on the TV ever. I don't watch it. But uh, uh, I once had a friend, uh, I, I, an erstwhile friend, he was going to buy half into my business. And it turns out that his father was like the Bechtel Corporation of Iran under the Shah. Oh, yeah. his, his father was a billionaire. And yep. the father died, and then when uh, the uh, the uh, Ayatollah, who was living on a commune in the south of France before he was ushered in, in during the so-called Iranian Revolution of 79, by the way, uh, it took them years and years to, to try to get their property back. Because, I mean, they he was a billionaire. Right. And, right. uh, I mean, all the, all the children of the family, including the erstwhile friend who wanted to buy part of my business at the time, this is more than 15 years ago, but, uh, I mean, the guy had uh, two degrees from Oxford University. He had a sister that attended Sorbonne, you know, big family, yeah. and they were all very well-to-do. But I'm going to tell you something. I researched his name. And I Go discovered, ahead. like your friend, he was also Jewish. Yeah, yes, a lot of Jews made a lot of money under the Shah, that's for sure. But it went bad, friends, and, uh, you know, they should have been able to change that government. Thanks, Lark. I guess we're about out of time, friends. I, hey, we'll tune in next week and stay tuned to RBN. Thanks to all of you. Talk to you soon. John, I'm the founder of Blackout Coffee, and I started uh, Blackout because I really love coffee. I've always loved coffee, and after traveling so much to Europe, South America, and trying so many different coffees that were so good, and uh, every time I came back uh, to the U.S., I was so disappointed with the coffee, so I figured that I had to do something about it.
The biggest difference is really is on the beans and the roasting process, how we roast it and how fresh it is. The fresher the roast, the better the quality. Here I have like all, all of the coffee, it's roasted within one to two days prior to being shipped. So it literally gets to consumers' house within three to five days after being roasted. If you like coffee, you have to try ours. It's fresh roasted, it's one of the best beans that we can get, and you will definitely see the difference. Visit blackoutcoffee.com and use the coupon code REPUB10. That's R 